everyone, and welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, a podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Today, our awesome guest is Phil Alves, the founder of DevSquad and DevStats, amazing domain names. And we're going to talk about prioritizing engineering resources today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. On board, engage and nurture your customers as well as marketing leads. To follow the best practices, download our free printable email planning worksheets at useless.com worksheets. Hi, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me. We're excited to have such an in-depth view about engineering today because it's not a technical show and I'm not a technical interviewer, so I'm going to have all the non-technical questions for you today. <laughs> I'm excited to go over them. Before we dive in, tell us more about DevSquad, your background story, and what you're doing today with DevSquad and DevStats. Yeah, so DevSquad is a consulting firm that helps people build SaaS products. We provide product teams that have engineers, designers, testers, and everything that you need to build a successful product. And DevStats kind of has the same mission, but instead of giving you the resources, we give you the tools to help your engineers be more productive, don't get burned out, and to help you run a, a development team that's high-performing. So you can buy a high-performing team from DevSquad, or you can build your own high-performing team using DevStats. So, so those are like my two products. So we're talking about engineering today, and you've overseen hundreds of companies build their products using your own team's hands. What do you feel are the most common mistakes, like large-scale, big mistakes that companies make when it comes to engineering? I think it's over-engineering. <laughs> From the beginning, we're always worried about, oh, we're going to have so many users. We, we need to think about how we're going to be and, and how we're going to be able to handle all this traffic, or we have to think about how you're going to make this flexible because of like all the hundred things that we're going to have later. And so companies end up over-engineering, taking too long to go to market, making a product so complex that only senior developers can work on. And also many times they're using technology that are not well-established. They're using the hottest new thing, and the hottest new thing is going to change in six months. So, so, so those are some of the big mistakes that I see companies do uh, when they're trying to, to make the decision of how to go uh, about building the product. Uh, by the way, if we zoom out a little bit, does your agency serve as the CTO partner, or does there need to be a CTO in place in order to work with your team? We usually serve as the CTO partner in the beginning. It depends. We can do both. But when they hire us, they don't need a CTO. They don't need a technical co-founder. Uh, we will help them with that part. So the top problem where, let's imagine, a non-technical founder is good enough at business so they raise a round of funding or get a bunch of money elsewhere and start thinking about building their product. And even if you raise a few million, it's still... You can burn through that pretty quickly, but if you raised like 500 as a seed round, how do you better spend this money so that you could get something viable out of it? Yeah, so 
it, it's funny, like, because also the one out of 500 to go into development, right? We're talking about that offline. There's a lot of things that, that comes in, into yeah. the product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you should build a product that maybe you hire two to four developers. And I like to think in three months increments, and I like to use OKRs. What can we do in the next three months to at least have beta users using this product to do a soft lunch? And then maybe six months, we actually have like a real lunch. But the thing it is, you want to hire product engineers and not soft engineers. There's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. A product engineer is a person that's going to think with you about the product and they find like their own success is to get a product to market. They're like, they, they find success when people are using the product. They, they are thinking about the product metrics and they want to solve a problem for the final user. A software engineer, uh, they might be amused by writing this amazing code that saves half a second processing. Or they might be amused by like using the newest technology. And so there's a place for software engineers, but they usually are very huge companies. When you're starting, you don't need software engineers. You need product engineers. You need people that care about getting the product done. Like the name of the show, done is better than perfect. Maybe they're not going to know everything about like how to really optimize that one query, but they're going to know how to go to the full circle and how to get real product at the hands of your users. A mistake people do many times, they're going to hire a developer that's very good because you work at Google or because you work at Apple. But he was working at one thing and that one thing only for years. And he never did the full flow. He never got actual product to market. So when you're hiring an engineer, like, okay, how many products did you build? How many products do you actually talk to market? Oh, I made this one piece of the software 10 times better. Well, that's great. You know the engineer that I need yet because I'm just trying to get a product out. <laughs> you know, So that's when you're thinking about it, the people that you choose, they have to be generalists. Like they have to think big picture. Generalists build companies, specialists scale companies. They try to build a company now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so make sure you hire that full stack developer. Developer, of course, nobody's like full stack. Nobody knows everything about everything, but they know enough about like the front end, the back end, the DevOps, everything that you need to get the product done. Uh, and so like choosing that developer, uh, it's probably like one of the biggest decisions you're going to make even as, an, as any kind of founder, but as a non-technical founder, but you really need to make sure that the vision of the developer align with your vision uh, of the, building an amazing product. There are labels out there, junior, middle level, senior. Do you, what kind of level engineers do you need? And let's say you decided to start with like Two, let's say a team of two engineers and then grow it. What would be the, the dynamics of it? Like who would go first? Who would you find next? It depends a lot on the complexity of your product to begin with. Mm-hmm. I would say 80% of SaaS products can be built by mid-level engineers. Mm-hmm. SaaS products are usually not very complex. There is like a lot of things out there, specifically if you choose the right technologies. Because there are technologies out there that gives the engineers like everything already kind of decided for them. Like I, I love the Laravel framework. The Ruben Rails framework was very successful and a lot of people use, but those frameworks already make the decision for the engineer. So like if you're using a full stack framework uh, and if you're a product, it's not like rock science. It's like 
has features that other SaaS have, uh, you're usually able to do with a mid-level engineer, one mid-level and one junior engineer. Uh, keep things simple. If you can afford a little bit more, you go like a, a senior and a mid-level, but you have to be very careful. Like going back, a senior engineer that didn't build a lot of products before might be a problem for you. You want an engineer that built products and not that specializing, optimizing one little piece of the code, one little thing. Like I'm a senior engineer working at Netflix for five years and I was making their player better. That guy's not going to be helpful for you. <laughs> you know. So I'm a mid-level engineer. I work in like this agents and I built five products in the last two years. That guy, it's more valuable to you than the senior engineer. And then maybe both of them together makes a good team now because they can start to, one has a lot of experience. The other one understand how to actually get stuff to market because those are like different skills. Because you're an agency and you're also responsible for the service infrastructure around your work, do you have a framework for like documenting the assignments, documenting the workflow? For example, when just two co-founders decide to build something, everything is like quick and dirty, but you probably have a more formalized way of like making specs and uh, making sure like estimates are more or less true to life, you know, uh, something like you can skip on that if you're just in-house uh, friends. But since you've worked with so many clients, what have you learned when it comes to the process? We have been very successful using different processes like Scrum, doing like a discovery. But one thing that has worked for us in the last few years is the shape up process. Uh, is oh, how yeah. It, is how Basecamp <laughs> does stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then like, because that's like, Basecamp is amazing because they do stuff with a small team and they care about getting things done. So we have been applying the shape up process and it's, it's been amazing. And so specifically in the discovery part. So this is how we figure out how we're going to do, how we don't overdo it. Again, like big companies, they usually spend so much time in user research and they do user research on the demand side, in the supply side, and they overdo it. So like, we want to do it, use a research, but we don't want to do too much. So I believe the shape up is a great process that's lean and it allows us to think about products in bets. I love the concept of bets, like, because we don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if people are going to use your product. You just have to think about your odds and make a bet. Is that bet successful or not? So, so since that book came out, it's one of the, the ways that we have been running the consulting firm, really trying to do the shape-up approach. And it has been working very well for us. When it comes to billing, do you just track hours or is there a smarter way? <laughs> we just do like a monthly subscription. I like to say software is never done. Oh, you got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be the development team. It's going to be us or it's going to be somebody else or it's going to be us and somebody else. So you pay this subscription and you're going to give you the full development team which is going to have at least two engineers qa and product manager that's the minimum that you have on a development on a product team and then it's month to month they can cancel anytime or, or they can come turn on turn off so this is how we do it why is it at least two developers i surely understand why you need a manager on top of a developer but <laughs> why is it always two i want the developers to be doing code review that's a very <laughs> important part of building software so if you have a second developer, I'm working on my thing, I'm done, I send a pull request, the second developer review my work, and I'm able to, like, developers are able to learn together uh, with each other. So 
a developer alone, first, it's going to be very hard for you to keep him happy. And you want to avoid turnover. <laughs> you know, when developers are working together, turnover is lower, but the quality of the product is higher because, again, code review. And also, you don't have a single point of failure. If a developer leaves, there's the second developer that understands the product very well. You know, in sales organizations, they always also hire two salespeople because they can compare the numbers and they can, like, the healthy competition help them be better. I believe the same applies in software development, the health competition, like, having a team, it helps them become high-performing, which is kind of like what I'm selling. It's a high-performing engineering team or I'm building for other people, you know. At UI Breakfast, we've had an interview about the allied uh, design teams model when they embed like design teams into bigger orgs. And yes, they also support the idea that at least two designers should be going into a company and doing something. So yeah, mm -hmm. definitely great yeah. minds do think like, what's your relationship with design? I can't avoid this question as a designer in the past. <laughs> do you have in-house designers? Do you provide them? How does it usually work? Yes, yes. We definitely have in-house design and they are part of the shape-up process. Like, so they're going to be in the room. Usually have, we like call the product trio. It's going to be a product manager, a product engineer. Again, I don't have software engineer <laughs> and a product designer. And the three of them work together to, to shape what we're going to build next, and then we hand it to the development team that builds. So I think design is, is very, very important. And But I do believe there's things that we can do sometimes when customers have less resources, like create design systems and, and create a couple of things so we don't always have to be like redesigning stuff. So we can kind of like take leverage, leverage that. That process that we inside UserList called polishing, which is basically... An extra day of work that developers spend making me happy <laughs> like <laughs> when it comes to details that nobody else can see ever, including customers or whoever. But as an experienced designer, I know that in Compound, they do make the feeling of quality and polish on the product. Mm -hmm. uh, but not all developers love that. Thankfully, uh, Bendix and Leo are up for this, but <laughs> not everybody. What's your take? I believe... When you build SaaS products nowadays, people are expecting an amazing user experience. It doesn't matter, like let's say in the B2B space, if you are QuickBooks or, or HubSpot, but people are using those products and they expect your level of usability uh, of the user experience to be very similar. So I, I think it's very important to take the time and make sure software is easy to use and the design it's it's being polished and it's beautiful. I do see though, uh, a lot of companies that come to us to build version two of their product and their version one is horrible. It looks super ugly and they're making seven figures in revenue. They have like this big revenue. It's depends on how big the pain is. I feel like if the pain is big enough, if the market's underserved, uh, people will be more patient with a product that doesn't look amazing. But let's say if you are serving marketers, if you're serving developers, if you're serving people that really are used to see a lot of great products, you better have amazing design. That's how I see it. These kind of companies were my favorite design clients in the old days because there is so much low-hanging fruit. They have already proved like the viability of the product. All they need is like an extra level of uh, visual pleasure on top of that. So uh, yeah. definitely big fan of these companies because they managed to get where they got to without like perceived level of polish and quality, right? That's yeah. pretty amazing. 
Yeah, I'm always impressed. And then sometimes they also have like horrible code, things that are not even safe, horrible design, and they're making millions of dollars. So again, go back to solving a very big pain point. And sometimes we get so stuck on like, this has to be perfect. And we don't realize that it's just like, are we solving a problem that's very big? And then, we, of course, being polished and, and building things there safe and, and fast, that's very important. But those are always cool reminders for us that it's it's about solving a big enough for pain, a pain, you know. Going back to the better done than perfect uh, mentality, I see people getting best results when they're like, you know, getting things done at the B or like C plus level so that they can test them faster. Like, mm-hmm. for example, me and my co-founder Benedict, we're both on the like, a plus kind of students thinking, which is not always great. Like we can ship uh, something very nice, but it will be slow. Like mm-hmm. it probably be more beneficial for the business if we did something like dirty handedly and start measuring results already instead of polishing the last mile, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't believe there's like a set way that works for everybody. There is like, but depends on your market, depends on who you're serving. Because if you think like Apple, they always take forever to take their products to market and because they want it to be perfect. But there are like all the YC startups that we that we hear about and they take things to market in three weeks. So, so but they're like, I feel like depending on the problem that you are solving, who you're serving, how much money you have, the way you go about it is different. And, and like sometimes we believe there's like this one better way or someone is doing different and the way that I do is not perfect. I believe it's, again, it goes back to what problem I'm trying to solve and what's the best tool to solve the problem that I have at hand. Among your client stories, and you may or may not call the names if you want, what are just like, not the best, not the worst, but like one that you think went just fine in the way that management, like resources were managed and the way they got to successful products and how fast. And the other one where things got, went wrong like and why you think that happened <laughs> i think when we can align product and engineer and everyone can work together to come to a solution that doesn't take too much work to build uh and when the customer really understand the problem they're trying to solve like maybe they're an industry expert things usually go very well when things sometimes a lot of our clients went and raise a bunch of money and they have too much money in their hand and then they overcomplicate stuff. They mm. want to redo things that were already working. Or, you know, building products so cool. And people just keep like wanting to build more and more and more product. And they forget to go actually sell the product and make sure people want that product. So we we have seen customers with too much resources uh, spending too many time, too much time building, 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 not validating. Now making sure people want to use that product. And so like in many cases, we, we have seen money being more of a curse than a blessing because they want to like, and investors are usually pushing them to, to spend that money and they're like, oh, we got to spend in product. And then they come and they like, they had like four developers with us and, and now they have 12 and like, we are making more money. But all of a sudden they're out of business because they put too much money in pro- engineer and not enough money in the other parts of their business and overcomplicating stuff. When you act as a product partner and the other side does the customer development and research, 
And how do you prefer those learnings and takeaways uh, to be communicated to you so you can go and take further decisions and shape up the stuff? Because it's not the small startups, they have this benefit that one founder does sales, does product, does marketing. They hold all this knowledge inside one head. You don't mm -hmm. have that benefit. You have like middlemen and, and things. Well, I like to say that I've never seen a successful company be built in the early days in a democracy. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's what I like. <laughs> you need someone to call the shots. Uh -huh. You need someone to make the decisions. And like on Design Sprint, there's a framework that I love that Google Venture used to do. They go to a bunch of exercises. And but there's always a decider that, that gets all the information and decides this is what we're going to do. Uh, and that's what I see. It works. I, uh, I love to, to get all the information from all the research. Uh, and we are not a decider when we're building products for our, for our customers. We are influencers. Uh -huh. So, so we, we bring everything that, that we can to the room. So he, he brings the information from the outside. Uh, we bring the information of how we, we can handle that, how we saw any other customers. And, the, and then we, it's back to him. So you're the decider. Where do you want to go? What decision do you want to make? And it's not always like the most voted or like more customers saying this or like exactly what customers want because there's like what customers are telling they want and there's also the, the real problem they have and their job is to solve the real problem you know like very famous quote by ford if i ask people what they want they ask faster horses not a car so just a long way of saying the way they work together it is like we believe there's always have to be a decider in the room and that's how we move quick who is the decider is essentially the person that's paying the bills and we just do the best we can to influence them and to keep them moving forward. And that's why we, we use the whole concept of bets. It's always about making bets. We're never going to be 100% right. Here is all the information that we have that can help you make a better decision. Make the decision. Let's go. <laughs> you know, and, and it's okay if you're wrong because we, we're going to have a chance to, to, to make another decision again uh, in a couple of weeks. How do you go about building what they call an engineering culture. Do you do that when you have two engineers in your team? Um, is it something that builds itself? Well, probably not. Uh, but what, what's your what's your top level advice on that? Yes, I think it starts from, from the first engineer, actually. <laughs> but hopefully you are able to start two engineers. But you want to build a culture um, of communication where people can communicate, where people can be okay with receiving feedback uh, and you want to build a culture again of getting things done and understanding where engineers think big picture they think about product and, and i think it's just about having open communication it's about understanding how how what's important for the engineers what's important for product what's important for design like you say hey design want this to be polished but it, it all, all comes down to communication i, I believe like, how can the team communicate very well? But also a culture where when there's problems, you don't find, like, whose fault is, but you found, what can we fix in our process so this problem doesn't happen again? Because it's usually not a person's fault. It's your process fault, <laughs> you know? So what process didn't work? Why did that break? Why did that happen? So I, I believe that's how you, you build a culture where engineers like to work. Uh, I've, you have to understand things like technical debt and you have to understand things like trade-offs. But everyone has to understand because we don't want to have like 
that push and pull where everyone is not going the same directions. You know, like you don't want your engineer team to never want to make a trade-off engineer because of technical debt and your design team to never want to make a trade-off in design. I feel like uh, great teams understand trade-offs in all levels. And that's what building a successful team and successful product is about. It's about understanding trade-offs. Trade-offs are probably the most, the softest word for the reality that uh, you face when you go from consulting into managing your own product, right? Like, as, as a consultant, it was like a cold shower to me, the reality when you always have limited resources, limited time, and everything that, yeah, sure, there is tons of advice, tons of things you can do, but never enough time to do it all. So I'm curious what that experience has been like for you when you went from managing a bunch of developers towards managing a bunch of developers for your own product. Yeah, it was funny because, again, like when you're just the consulting, it's, it's a lot easier for you to be firmer. Don't you understand? You have to make trade-offs. You're not going to get this to market. And then you, you bring the customer and you talk about all the trade-offs and, and everything. And, and like, and you try to help them prioritize the stuff. And you're like, okay, let's go over to this exercise that now next later. And it's it's so like, you're not very attached to the output because it's not your product. And you just come in and it makes, sounds like things are black and white when you're trying to help people make trade-offs when you're just like in the mentor seat, when is yourself to make the trade-offs? Like I, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And like I have four engineers full time on this and it's definitely not enough. And I, I want to add more. I want to do everything. And then I like have such a hard time, like being my client's shoes and making that call. So it's a bunch easier from the outside. So it was f- fun. And I actually had a lot of internal trainers. My own product manager is like, look, guys, it's a lot harder to make the trade-off when you're the customer side, when you have like all your clients saying different things. And when you have like a million different ideas of where you want your product to be. So it is harder, definitely. And it's, I'm like, I should know better. I, I, I tell people all the time that that's all they're supposed to do. But I still get stuck on the mentality of having a hard time making trade-offs <laughs> when it's my own product, you know? With the dev stats, what kind of philosophy are you trying to convey? Like, what's your, like, differentiator? Is it about philosophy or is it about how your product is made or organized? Like, what kind of benefit does it bring to developer teams? Dev stats is built upon, like, two big surveys that one was sponsored by Google, one was sponsored by Microsoft. The first one was a survey called Dora Metrics. Uh, and was when they're trying to figure out what is a high-performing development team and how can we track, uh, or how can I know if my team is actually doing well or not? And so they did the survey, and then they come up with four numbers, and they're like, okay, now we know if we have a cycle time, failure rate, uh, these four numbers, and then become five. If those numbers are here, we're high-performing. Great. But that didn't help people learn how to become high-performing. Now they knew because they went in the interview like more than 30,000 companies and they knew those are the companies that have performed. So those are the benchmarks. Then a, a second survey was done like years later. It was like 2021 and they come up with a space framework. And the space framework actually was trying to define how can you actually get your team to high performing? Like what should you track? And then they decide, they, they realize you have to look at performance. You have to look at flow. You have to look at communication. You have to look at activity and you have to look at developer well-being. 
So those are the, f- the five things I have to somehow look at. And then Microsoft and Google just throw their hand in the air and they're like, this is impossible to do through software. We do it to a survey. <laughs> so, because we've surveyed, because each company is different, we can't just connect the software somewhere and tell you those information. And then a bunch of companies decide they were wrong and then they would start building software that track those data and that give people uh, reports and insights so they could help their team improve in those areas. Uh, Devstats is one of them. You know, like years ago when Google made OKRs public, uh, everyone decided to do OKRs and then a lot of SaaS to track OKRs came to market. Uh, so why it's my software better than all the other softwares that are trying to do the same thing. And we're hopeful that we are simpler, that we can move quicker, and that we make more approachable for our users to use. I, I don't think it's going to be the ideal for every single user out there, but I think there's a, a piece of the market that we're able to, to serve well. And that's my whole thesis, and, and it's what I'm doing. But I like to build product where there's competition. I think if there's competition, it's good. Like the same way to talk two developers, they're better than one developer. I think a few companies trying to solve the same problem is better than just one company trying to solve that problem. So, so that's the space that my product's in. Uh, and it's all the products out there that are solving the same problem. It's based on those two research. It's the Dora metric research and the space framework that was one, done, one is sponsored by Google, one is sponsored by Microsoft. Does that answer We're your gonna, question? Absolutely. We're going to link to those in uh, the show notes. And thanks so much for sharing the background story. Because like, as it's, it's not my field, so I have no clue how uh, exactly that came around to be. And now it makes much better thing, a sense. And at first, actually, we started using a, a product that was solving the problem. And then the product got sold. And then the company that bought it made the product worse. And that was, I was like, I'm just going to build my own. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's kind of like how we started. <laughs> when it comes to developer well-being, as founders, as product managers, as designers and marketers, what can we do to help our developers feel better, <laughs> be better, and then be more pro- prolific? Because like we all want to stand around them and then make them more prolific, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I can talk about, that's kind of, it's the hardest piece of the software. I'm like everyone always asks this question. Great, how are you going to track developer well-being? <laughs> because that's super hard. But w- we start thinking about a couple things that really, has been helping a lot. The one thing is unplanned work. When developers have unplanned work, like they just come up, that really stress developers out. So we are tracking and plan work and we're like trying to make sure that we reduce that, that we do a better job planning. Like if you're running two weeks of sprints or whatever we're using, we're trying to reduce that because that causes anxiety because like expectations, I have expectation I'm going to show up to work today and I'm going to work on future X and now everything is changing. It's changing too quick. So that's one problem. Another thing that we look at, it's like how many work in progress they have. We, we track daily week because if, is common that developers are going 300 directions instead of like starting this one task and getting that one task done. It's starting that one task and get that one task done. We track if they're working after hours, if they're working weekends, and we look at ENPS. So we just send a survey for all the developers using the product and they answer zero to 10, like kind of like the NPS score, but it's an ENPS for employees. So that's one of the, the things. And then we look how many promoters we have how many diffractors we have and how many people are passive. And then we try to, to improve it from there. 
but that's definitely the hardest piece of my software, how we track developer well-being. And we keep researching. We keep trying to figure out, is the, does this report help? Basically, we're trying to avoid burnout. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it's a lot, a lot about the culture. <laughs> so, you know, like if, about having a culture where developers love to work. But the ENPS score is one of the things that we track that maybe doesn't tell what's wrong per se or where the problem is, but at least tell me something's wrong. Because if your ENPS is low, you know we have a bad culture uh, for your developers. But we are like going deeper and deeper, trying to figure out how to, to do more. Actually, you, you did go deeper answering my question because I was only hoping for some tips on improving that. And you gave uh, like a way to measure, which is even more precious. That's so now we have better insight. Now what the, we know what the marketers are, so we can do a better job. Uh, not uh, like piling up unplanned work, uh, you know, not interrupting their flow and things like that. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, measuring that is what my product's trying to do, and it's very, very hard. But I guess you can kind of know too by just talking to them. <laughs> what do you, do you wish every founder knew about running an engineering team? And I'm talking non-technical founder, probably. Like what you see, you see people coming from different industries, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, who never did like a tech product before. What do you wish they knew? Um, I wish they knew maybe the basics and understand how software get built, even if they're not going to be building a product. Because I believe uh, if you to be a developer, a very good developer is going to take hours and hours and hours. But to have a basic understanding of how products get built, you just need 20 hours. So if you're going to be a founder of a technical product, I believe you should take 20 hours and learn the basics. So you can have conversations that's going to help us make trade-offs. Uh, I believe, again, who is the decider? It is the founder. Uh, and it is the founder that has to have a conversation with me, the technical side, so we can decide on those trade-offs. So you don't need to be a developer. You don't need to learn, learn to make. But because what we have uh, many times when founders... They, they outsource all the trade-offs for the engineer team or the engineer trade-off. And that's a problem because the engineer doesn't have the big picture. Or they make very, very bad trade-offs because they have zero understanding of what's going on there. So I, I believe uh, founders need to be able to understand technical trade-offs to a point. And I believe engineers can help them to get to there. Those you 20 know? hours, how, how they should be better spent? So... Go take a, a course and SQL, basic SQL. <laughs> like there's a lot of like try to do the basic cred. There's like a lot of courses. Read a book on the topic. Um, that's any favorite ones? I don't have any one on top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> As we're wrapping up today's episode, uh, one do and one don't for our listeners who are working with engineering teams. Do simplify stuff and try to build products that are the simplest. So I feel like one of your core values should be simplicity and think about the simplest way to always build a solution. And it's usually to get a little bit more technical. It's usually uh, using a full stack framework, using good and monolithic application and not overcomplicate uh, how you build stuff. So try to find engineers that love simplicity. Do not 
copy the big companies. <laughs> that, that's a bad idea. They are in a different stage than you are. If you're going to copy the big companies, you have to figure out what they did in their early, early days. Because what they're doing now, it's not going to work for you. Uh, and like looking at what Google and Facebook and whatever HubSpot's doing and being like, oh, I'm going to do the same thing because that's best practice. It's not going to work. Best practice don't work uh, if you're not the same size, if you don't have the same resources as they have. This advice is worth its weight in gold in any industry. Like what works for a landing page design in Dropbox.com will not work for your startup that nobody knows about. That is like a very exaggerated example, but uh, same for marketing, same for (laughs) design, website, layouts, anything. (laughs) Even UI, even UI, (laughs) like what Instagram can get away with. Uh, maybe a new app wouldn't because it's really like not great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You have to really think about that. That's uh, that's why I I started my podcast, SaaS Origin Stories, because I want to talk to people about their origin stories. Like, what did it work when you were like just started? Uh, what did you do? And having those conversations, because I believe you're too much looking at what companies are doing today and we forget that they act very different. Uh, when they were starting, like their their origin. Glad that you mentioned your show. What are the other places where people can find you and your companies online? Uh, they can find me at fuelalvis.com, sign up for my newsletter, see the link to my podcast, or any of my companies, devstats.com or devspot.com. That's a bunch of stuff. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks so much for your advice. I hope it uh, sheds a bit of light into this mysterious technical industry (laughs) for us non-technical people and uh, we're wishing you good luck this year hope both the consultancy and the product prosper oh thank you thank you for having me thank you phil have a wonderful rest of your week you too thanks for listening you can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes.